Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue working our way through week four of the greatest sermon ever preached with Dr. John Newfeld. Looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, we'll cover the topic of spiritual disciplines and pride in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been noticing that there is but a small step from devotion to God to self-righteous arrogance, which leads to pride and self-glorification. Sometimes, after our most profound sense of the awareness of God, follows that, that horrifying thought, that smug and insidious thought, that my experience of God is so much better than that of others. You know, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And yet, while that's true, Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that pride and religious observance, or pride and spiritual expressions, often go hand in hand. A heightened sense of our own spirituality often leads us to believe that we are in some way superior. It was Jerry Bridges who said, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Imagine that. We might even repent and feel smug that we have done so. You know, it's for that reason, as Jesus taught us to pray, that he taught us to say, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Before we look at how our forgiveness is tied to the forgiveness of others, let's dismiss a false conclusion. This is not an example of works righteousness. We don't earn forgiveness for our sins by forgiving others. In Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant found in Matthew 18, one of the lessons we learn is that whatever sins others have committed against us are but a small amount when compared against the sins we have committed against God. So forgiving others can't be compared to the forgiveness of our sins at the cross. So let's discount the idea that forgiving others earns our forgiveness. The Bible simply denies it. Instead, when Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others, the prayer itself comes with an assumption. Once our eyes are open to the enormity of our offense before God, whatever others have done to us always looks like a trifling, a trivial and insignificant thing compared to our debt. Now, when I put matters this way, I don't mean to imply that the sins of others are a trifling. When a woman has suffered years of abuse from a violent husband, or, or when lies and slander have cost a man or a woman his or her job, or, or when murder has deprived one of a lifetime of fellowship with a loved one, well, I could go on and on, describing the kinds of hellish and frightful sins that human beings commit against other human beings. See, victims should not be re-victimized by saying that the matter is insignificant. It's not. Furthermore, I I always feel it's important when speaking about such matters that, that we carefully make a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Reconciliation means that the relationship has been restored. 
See, where there is no heartfelt repentance from the offender, where the offender will not own and take responsibility for the damage done, and where steps are not taken to repair the damage, reconciliation is not possible. I, for my part, would not encourage an abused woman to go back to an abusive relationship only to be re-victimized. I mean, that's insane. But whereas in many cases, reconciliation is not possible, but forgiveness is always possible. Forgiveness simply releases the offender. Forgiveness fosters an inner attitude in which the victim refuses to respond in vindictiveness. Indeed, the one who forgives allows Christ to develop in their own heart an attitude of love for the offender. It allows the victim to even go beyond an inner attitude to even bless the offender if that should become possible. And so while I wish to acknowledge that certain wounds that we bear are not a trifling, I am quick to add that once we grasp our own sin before God, our sins before God are infinitely more monstrous than the sins that have been committed against us. Once we grasp what sin against God truly is, we are staggered that the great God of heaven should not only forgive, but would also reconcile us to himself through the horrifying death of his Son. At the moment when our eyes are opened to see what has been accomplished in the cross, well, we're transformed. Anyone who will not forgive the evil that men do against them has never been to the cross. That's why in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. Forgiveness that is offered to the evil others do results in two things. First, the sins of others reminds us of our own sin against God. And unless we see the connection between these two things, we will never come to terms with grace and what it is to have been brought from darkness into light. And second, the forgiveness we offer to evildoers is intended to keep the practice of our faith a humble rather than an arrogant thing. And so Jesus doesn't recommend the forgiveness of enemies. He demands it. If we refuse his demand, we demonstrate that we ourselves have never repented of our own sins. An unforgiving heart is a heart that has a false faith, whereas a forgiving heart is one transformed at the cross. Now, we do well to remember where this teaching on forgiveness of enemies is found. In the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking about the relationship of his disciples to the world. But in chapter 6, in this section on the sermon, Jesus has changed the emphasis. He's talking about the relationship of his followers to God and to the spiritual dimension of their lives. He knows how quickly the practice of faith can degenerate into pride. And so he's warned his followers not to practice their righteousness in order to be seen by others and instead has spoken of certain spiritual things that we must do in private. And these include giving to the poor, and it includes prayer. And prayer itself must include the forgiving of our enemies, lest prayer degenerate into arrogance. But now Jesus adds another trap in our spirituality. I'm reading Matthew 6, 16 to 18. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now at the outset, I'm fully aware at how often the first four words, and when you fast, have been used by many Bible teachers to make it sound as if Jesus took for granted that all his followers were required to fast. Furthermore, Matthew 9.15 is taken as a further indication of this. There Jesus was asked why his disciples did not fast, and he answered by saying that he would be taken away, referring to his death and ascension then to heaven after his resurrection, and then he said, they will fast. Further examples can be found in the experience of the early church, for instance, in Acts 13, before the sending out of the first ever missionaries, we are told that the entire church was worshiping the Lord and fasting. And so from that, it would appear that fasting was practiced by the early church. It was probably related to times of prayer in which something significant was before the church. Having said that, I do notice that the New Testament contains no teaching on fasting, either in terms of its significance or how it is to be practiced. If one contrasts that to prayer, there are a number of New Testament passages that teach about prayer. And so, if you are like a great many Christians, the question of fasting remains a question. Many Christians have never heard a sermon on it, and many Christians have never practiced it. So where do we begin? Well, I think the best place to begin is to set this teaching of Jesus within the religious context of the Israel that Jesus lived in. See, in the Old Testament, there was only one command to fast. Leviticus 16, verse 31, speaking about the celebration of the Day of Atonement, adds these words, It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourself. It is a statute forever. See, the reference to afflicting of ourselves is understood to be a reference to fasting. Before the celebration of the Day of Atonement, all Israel was to remember their sins, and they were to fast. That was the only command to fast in the entire Bible. As followers of Jesus, all of us are tempted to live out our faith in ways that displease and even offend God. This includes having attitudes like pride. But as we move to this section of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus reminds us of the importance of being humble and not seeking the approval or recognition of people when it comes to things like fasting. Stay with us after the break as Dr. Neufeld helps us grasp the role and lesson of fasting for all Christians today. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus then opened his mouth as he taught them the greatest sermon ever preached, known to you and me as the Sermon on the Mount. 2,000 years later, people are still reflecting, discussing, even challenging each other about its meaning and relevance. For the next five weeks, Dr. Neufeld walks us through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, revealing the heart of what it means to be a true follower of Christ and the implications upon how we ought to live. Join us on this station every weekday, or if you miss an episode, you can catch up online at backtothebible.ca. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. While there is only one biblical command to fast, the Old Testament does record a number of other fasts. Zechariah 7.5 indicates that during the 70 years in which Israel was in exile, away from the promised land, they fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month of every year. And so this practice lasted for 70 years, and in that, a custom had developed. But most of the fasts that are found in the Old Testament are fasts that happened at special times. These fasts seem to carry with them the idea that the very act of fasting was a kind of voluntary self-humiliation before God. In Psalm 69, verse 10, David says, When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. See, that theme is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Although it was not commanded outside of the Day of Atonement, we find God's people taking the initiative in fasting at very specific moments, and they are usually related to extreme moments in life. So, for instance, during the time of the Judges, when Israel had been twice defeated by the men of Benjamin, Judges 20 verse 26 says that the people of Israel wept before God and fasted. When Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle, 1 Samuel 31 verse 13 says that the men of Jabesh-Gilead fasted for seven days. After the sin of Israel, after they made an idolatrous calf in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 9.18 says Moses fasted for 40 days. We could extend examples. King Ahab fasted to be forgiven. Nineveh fasted after the preaching of Jonah. Daniel fasted as he confessed the sins of Israel. The entire assembly of Israel fasted after Ezra read the law to them and acknowledged their sin. Now, these examples of fasting, especially those that were intended to to showcase self-affliction, weeping, humbling of ourselves, and the confession of sins, this thing we called a voluntary self-humiliation before God, this became a regular practice. We read of a woman named Anna in Luke 2.37. She's an elderly widow who spent her life in prayer and had a daily regimen of fasting. Now, my way of reading that means that it was her daily practice to skip one meal and give herself to prayer during that time. According to Jesus in Luke 18, verse 12, he portrays a proud Pharisee who in his prayer reminds God that he fasts twice a week. Indeed, it would seem that Pharisees practiced a weekly discipline of fasting. Again, one wonders if this meant an entire day without eating or just the skipping of one meal. But all this fasting became the source of religious showmanship. In Zechariah 7 verse 5, the Lord asks, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for those 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And then God answers, you didn't do it for me. You did it for yourself. Furthermore, Isaiah is brutal around the idea of fasting. I'm reading Isaiah 58, verses 5 to 6. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? 
There is in Isaiah a condemnation of those who made a show of their fasting and remained unresponsive to the commands of God. Fasting may be an afflicting of oneself, a self-humbling exercise, but if one does the actual fasting and then go back to the same pathways of disobedience, the fast itself is an offense to God. And so imagine the practice of fasting in Jesus' day. Just like the prayers that were offered publicly, so also fasting usually contained observable features like wearing sackcloth and not washing and not shaving and sprinkling ashes on top of one's head and not wearing the usual oils on the body that were customary to wear. You looked like a mess and smelled like a mess and you were humiliating yourself as a sign of your humility in the presence of God. And all of this had great effect. Now, before I move to an application, I need to return to the matter of whether Christians should be fasting today. See, it is true that Jesus assumed that his disciples would fast. Let's consider again Matthew 9, verse 14. In response to the query of why the Pharisees fasted and his disciples did not, Jesus said, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Please notice that for Jesus, the idea of fasting and the idea of mourning is the same. You fast when your soul is in sorrow. You don't fast as a regular sign that you really are a humble person. And then, says Jesus, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Well, why? because they're going to be longing for the return of Christ. It's their way of saying, my heart is afflicted by the fact that Jesus has not yet come back. I long for him, but he's not yet returned. And in this agony, we fast. And so here, from my perspective, is why and when Christians should fast. I think there are times of fasting in which, as Jesus reminded us in Matthew 5, verse 6, in which he spoke of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I would think living in our culture, which aborts unborn children and now allows for euthanasia and the killing of unwanted people, this in itself might be a cause for fasting. I would also think that fasting for unsaved loved ones or fasting when we're struggling with a habitual sin that will not die See, all these kinds of things might call God's people to fast and pray. John Piper has said that when we fast, we put our stomach where our heart is. We grieve over our idolatry. We think of how easy it is to live for things that grieve God. So rather to continue this activity, we allow our body to grieve instead. We take away all the props and rely on God. But now back to Jesus' point of application. When you do fast, he says, keep the matter a secret. Keep a smile on your face and don't go around with a mournful expression. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. That means that your father, who hears the desperate prayers and the heart that grieves before him, will answer what you ask. And that's the reason why the question of fasting and the model of the Lord's Prayer go hand in hand. That's also why the issue of forgiving our enemies belongs to the same package. See, in Jesus' day, there were three acts of Jewish piety. They were giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And each of these acts of devotion had become acts of religious hypocrisy. And that shouldn't surprise us. 
Jesus himself, as he began his public ministry, set aside 40 days to fast and pray. And as he fasts, the devil comes to tempt him. Now, why should that not surprise us? It's because our devotion to God, our prayers, our giving, and our acts of obedience are all fraught with hypocrisy and pride. And Jesus knew how to confront this temptation and how to overcome it in his own life so that he never sinned. Consider how this is true of us. Morning devotions, prayer, faithful Bible reading, a devotion to weekly attendance at church, volunteering for ministry, serving in some area, maybe a deacon or an elder or a Sunday school teacher. We can do all of this and in our devotion become enemies of Christ. Pride, as C.S. Lewis said, leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And so Jesus deliberately teaches us the pathway of humility. Fast in secret, he says. Give in secret. Pray for forgiveness and forgive your harshest enemies, remembering you are a bigger rebel than they are. And when you do all the spiritual disciplines designed to draw you closer to God, remember that as Jerry Bridges said so aptly, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. We need to every single day remember that pride stays close at hand. And so we need to pray, O Lord, help me to do my acts of devotion in secret, where they can be seen by God. And root out for me, O Lord, all acts that offend you, even in those acts where I think I am most devout. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So let me end with a word of encouragement to everyone who's listening. Please don't hear any of this as saying that we should stop doing our morning devotions or our religious acts of devotion. What we should do is to keep a check on pride. This has been a profound and meaningful lesson for all of us today as we strive to live out Jesus' teachings on prayer, fasting, and forgiveness. Sometimes we hear a very different message emphasizing that we have the power and the ability to become better Christians. And yet what our Lord stressed was that all of our activities, and even those done for Him, would be tainted by our flesh. That is why we so desperately need His grace and His power to truly live as salt and light in the world. Join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues the greatest sermon ever preached in Matthew chapter 6. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. Our efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. In this new year, perhaps you'd consider joining our ministry team as a monthly partner. Our monthly donor program, the 1119 Fellowship, provides sustainable support to all the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Consider how you might invest in these efforts as people of all ages and stages of life open their lives up to discover more about Jesus in the pages of the Bible. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship Program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, 
visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.